continue in our sermon series in the book of James. We find ourselves once more as the Lord opens us up to James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. If you recall, we were in the same text two weeks ago, but we will revisit again and look at it from a different perspective. So we are in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. And when you're there, I'll ask that you rise for the reading of God's word. Again, James, the second chapter, will begin in verse 14. Now this is the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from work, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you uh, join me in prayer at this time? Uh, God, as we have just sung, uh, would you teach us? Uh, Would you teach us? Would you inspire us? Um, God, would you rebuke us? Uh, Would you lovingly scold us? Uh, Would you speak your words of truth and love over us? And would you guide us in the way everlasting? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And we looked at this passage two weeks ago, and we saw that the contrast that James is drawing here is not between faith and works, but the contrast is actually between living faith and dead faith, active faith and useless faith, or genuine faith versus counterfeit faith. See, some will make the claim to just have faith. And others will say, you know, I don't really talk about faith that much and what I believe. I'm all about working and doing. And James is saying, no, no, no. Faith by itself is no faith at all. And works by itself cannot produce saving faith. Now, if I were to show you a strawberry seed, a very, very small strawberry seed, and ask you, 
is this a strawberry? Some of you might say, well, potentially, or it could be. But the answer, is a strawberry seed a strawberry? The answer is a resounding no. It is not a strawberry. Now, I also have this toy in my pocket. It's a toy strawberry that Brooklyn plays with. But if I were to ask you, is this a real strawberry? You can say, well, it looks like a strawberry, but is it a strawberry? And the answer is no. So also, faith by itself without any works or claimed faith without works is not faith at all. And works by itself cannot bring about faith. True faith, according to James, is alive, it is active, it is useful. And as I used the word uh, two weeks ago, true faith is operative. Now today, as we look at this passage once more, um, I want to focus a little bit more uh, because there's a really important debate centering on this passage that I think we really need to flesh out, and that is the issue uh, or the debate surrounding justification. Now, if you are a good Protestant, you'll know that one of the core tenets of Protestantism is justification by faith alone. Now, this justification by faith alone is just a really concise way of saying this. It's a concise way of explaining that when Jesus died on the cross, he stood in the cosmic courtroom of God, he stood before God, and he said, look, my work is sufficient to pay the debt of sin. And of course, God approved of that, because it was God himself who had sent his son, who had asked his son Jesus to do this. And at that moment, God declared righteous everyone who would put their faith in Jesus. He declared on that spot, whoever believes in my son is declared righteous. Now, what is the proof? For a court ruling, we need paperwork. We need proof. And that proof, according to the Bible, is the resurrection. When Jesus, when God rose or resurrected his son, that was proof that we were declared righteous. Now, here's the really exciting thing about justification by faith, and this often gets missed. While we have already been declared righteous, there will come a time when you and I, each and every one of us, will stand before God in His cosmic courtroom. And on that day, the declaration that we have heard will become a metaphysical reality. In other words, right now we have been declared righteous, but on that last day when we stand before God, we will become righteous. And all of this is not on the basis of works or merits, but on the basis of faith in Jesus. This is justification by faith alone. I know it's a very, very wordy thing. Uh, Presbyterians or Protestants have a way of being just really wordy, but that is what justification by faith alone means. Romans 3.28 says this, For behold, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Paul makes this extremely clear. However, there's a problem. 
Because in today's passage, James seemingly offers a contradictory statement. Look with me in verse 24. This is what he says. While Paul in Romans 3.28 says a person is justified by faith alone, James says in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This has been a thorny issue. In fact, Martin Luther, um, the trailblazer of the um, Protestant Reformation, even offered uh, at one point his doctoral hat. He said, if anyone can solve this issue, I will give you my doctoral hat. It's been very problematic. It's one of the biggest theological divisions between Protestants and Catholics today. How do we make sense of this? What is James saying? How do we reconcile these two statements? Well, two ways. There are two ways to think about this. And um, the two ways are, first, uh, by looking at the semantics, and second, looking at the context. Now, first, the semantics. Uh, Paul and James in these verses, uh, they're using the same word justified, but they're actually using it in two different ways. We are all aware uh, that a single word could have multiple meanings. For example, uh, the word baby. The word baby could refer to a small uh, human being, a toddler, Or we can use it in the verbal form, right? When we say we baby someone, it it means that we're coddling the person. Or we can refer to someone who is old, who's an adult, but who's the youngest in the family. We can call that person a baby. Or when the person is acting immature, we can say, you are being a baby. Multiple ways of using the word baby. Now, I have a baby uh, in my family. Uh, his name is Brooklyn. Uh, he's the youngest kid. He's four years old, and he hates the fact that he is a baby. In fact, he often lies about his age. When you ask him how old he is, he says he's six years old. Uh, he's actually four, but he hates the fact that he's a baby, and sometimes I call him my baby, not because he's a you know, tiny little baby, but because he's the youngest in the family, and we coddle him. Or sometimes when he acts immature, we say, don't be a baby. And every time he hears this word baby, he thinks that we're only using it in one way, as a small adult, and he hates it. And every time I call him, oh, you're my baby, he says, I'm not a baby, I'm Brooklyn. <laughs> That's how he always responds, I'm not a baby, I'm Brooklyn. He, he doesn't understand that we can use the word baby in multiple ways. See, that is actually what's going on here. There are two definitions or two ways we can use the word justify. One way or one definition is to declare righteous as in a court of law. And that's how Paul is using it. When God is, justifies us, he's declaring that we are righteous. However, the other definition or the other use of justify is to vindicate or to prove to be in the right. And so if I were to say, you know, the police was justified in giving you a speeding ticket, I'm saying that the police had very good reason. They were in the right for their actions. Or a sentence I like to use when my boys are making a lot of excuses, I always say in the household, don't try to justify your actions. And what am I saying? Don't try to show or prove what you did was right. And this is how James is using the word justified. With some help from John Calvin, this is what James is saying. A person's faith 
His identity in Christ is justified. In other words, it's proven by his works and not simply with just a knowledge about God. That's what James is saying. Our faith is proven. It's vindicated by our actions, by our words. Or as one commentator says, Paul is talking about declaration while James is talking about demonstration. James is saying, we are not declared righteous by our works, but he's saying we demonstrate our righteousness by our works. Same word, two different meanings. James is saying we show forth, we prove our faith. Our faith is in many ways, as he says in chapter 1, tested by our response, our actions. While there are, also, while there are two meanings to uh, the word justified, there's also two different contexts. Um, Paul, as he writes in Romans, um, and most of his letters, Paul, he is writing largely to a Gentile audience. And James, in this letter, he's writing to a Jewish audience. Now, the Bible is quite practical because how it speaks and addresses two different contexts, the Bible is very flexible, and it addresses people in these two different contexts. On one hand, you have the Gentile church. Now, think about who the Gentiles are. They weren't Jewish. They weren't following Jewish customs. They didn't worship God for centuries like the Jews did. They didn't have the Torah. These people just heard the good news about Jesus, and they were grafted into the people of God. They were brought in. Now, what do you think was going on in the Gentile churches? They, were, they became the people of God, but as they matured, there was a growing inclination, a growing feeling that they were still less than the Jewish church. And so, what did they try to do? Well, out of curiosity, out of inclination, maybe out of an inferiority complex, they started to adopt Jewish customs. They started to adopt Jewish laws, thinking that if I become more Jewish, then I can be a better Christian. That's why Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from not just works, but works of the law. James is saying, listen, you don't have to be Jewish to be Christian. James, on the other hand, he's writing to Jews, Jews who have been under the law for centuries. And while the law was a delight, in the day-to-day, -day, it felt like a duty. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus comes along with the good news that he's fulfilled the law, that they don't have to abide by Torah anymore. And what do you think that will do? to this people who have been under the law for centuries. At first, they felt liberated, but that liberation would morph, would change into licentiousness, into laziness. And what James found in the Jewish church were that these Jews, they were putting up their hands and saying, you know what, I've been justified by faith. Great, I don't have to do a single thing. And that's why James is saying, no, 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 you're mistaken. You're saved by faith. But the demonstration of your faith is your works, your words and your actions. You know, I think this very much applies to us in whatever context that you're in. 
If you were raised, if you weren't raised a Christian, if you believed in Jesus at a later age, baptized as an adult, there might be this inclination in you to want to adopt cultural Christian practices. For those who have come into the faith at a much later age, you might be thinking to yourself, you know what? I've only been a Christian for so long. I'm someone still new. I'm someone that's less than in comparison to other people. Unless I talk like a Christian or act like a Christian, there's a sense that you still feel like an outsider. Now, there's a couple at our church. Uh, I won't give you their names, uh, but they have an interesting story. Uh, The wife grew up in a very traditional conservative church. So she grew up in the church, you know, with conservative practices, you know, as a, as a conservative Christian. Uh, but the husband grew up Catholic and had very little exposure to Christianity. They started coming out to our church uh, many years ago, and uh, as they were coming out, uh, you know, during the time of praise, as the drums were going and the bass was banging, you know, the husband who was just new to this started to dance along, what people naturally do when they hear music. They bop along, and he started dancing, and the wife nudged them, saying, hey, hey, we don't do this at church. <laughs> and so, in an effort to assimilate or maybe not embarrass his wife, uh, he stopped dancing. Uh, and today, he's still as a statue, <laughs> a Presbyterian statue. See, if you came to faith at an older age, you had no exposure to Christianity, you're not familiar with the culture or the lingo, you might, be, you might have this feeling of, you know what, I need to become more Christianese. But, you know, Paul is saying, listen, you're justified by faith and faith alone. You do not have to adopt these cultural practices. Your standing before God and status before Him is just as good as every other Christian, whether you've been a Christian for five generations or whether you've been a Christian for five days. But on the other hand, if you grew up in the church and you've probably been inundated with all of these rules and customs as to what a Christian ought to look like and what a Christian ought to be, And when you heard the good news of Jesus, that you are justified by faith, and you were liberated by the good news, what did that feel like? What happened? Well, you were liberated. But Christian, the question today is, has that liberation morphed into licentiousness? Have you become lazy? Thinking, you know what, I have now, you know, I'm taking off all of this Christian baggage, and now I am free, I am liberated. But has that liberation turned into laziness? If so, you need to hear the message of James, that your faith is demonstrated by your works and not simply by a profession of the mouth. As Luther is credited to saying, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never, never alone. See, friends, there is only one way to truly be freed from the law. There's only one way to actually be divorced from the law. To be divorced from the law, we need to be married to Christ. And when we are married to Christ, 
that union will start to dictate much of how we live, how we think, how we speak. Now, to prove this point or to illustrate this point, James gives two examples. He talks about Abraham in verses 21 to 23, and he talks about Rahab in the following verses. Look with me in verses 21 to 23. He says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, James here is doing something fascinating, okay? This is, uh, I, you know, while carefully looking at this, I realized that, wow, James is he's masterfully weaving Scripture together. This is what he does. In verse 23, James quotes Genesis 15, 6. He says this, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Those of you who know, in Genesis 15, the context is this. God appears to Abraham, who is at that time about 75 years old, and he tells him, you are going to have a son, and your son will bless all the nations. Now, even though this was borderline humorous, this was funny because Abraham was 75 years old and his wife was also really old. This was Abraham. He even had doubts. He even pushed back. He was arguing with God. But in the end, at the end of Genesis 15, Abraham believes God. He trusts God. And so Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's justification by faith alone. Justification as declaration. But you know what happened afterwards? After a son was actually born to him and 40 years had passed and the child was in his teenage years, God appears to Abraham and he says, I want you to take your son, Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him. Now you might be thinking, and Abraham is probably thinking, what happened to the promise that God will bless the nations through Isaac? But despite the apparent contradiction, Abraham still trusts and he obeys God. And God takes Abraham all the way up to the mountain to the point where Abraham actually has to bind his own son, wrap him up with rope, to the point where Abraham actually lifts up the knife to sacrifice his son. And at that moment, God says, Abraham, stop now. Now I know that you fear me. And James says this, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? What's going on here? What is James drawing out? Genesis 15, where Abraham believed God, that is declaration. Genesis 22, where Abraham went to sacrifice his son, that is demonstration. Genesis 15 He was declared righteous. Genesis 22, Abraham demonstrates his righteousness. Abraham didn't simply claim to have faith, but he lived that faith out. He didn't merely acknowledge God, but he obeyed God, and his faith was demonstrated by his actions. The second example that James gives is that of Rahab. And he says this, verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. 
If you think about Abraham and, Ra uh, and Rahab, these two examples, they are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Abraham is the father of faith, an honorable and esteemed character. But Rahab, on the other hand, who is she? As James put, she is a harlot, a prostitute. Now, you might be thinking, why is James bringing up her shameful past? Why is he bringing up what she does? How insensitive. But that's precisely the reason why James calls Rahab out as an example and witness. Because for James, the demonstration of faith is not based on status, prestige, or heritage. It's not based on your background or your quantity of faith. It looks different for everyone. And it doesn't matter what situation it in. What matters for James is, is your faith alive or not? And for Rahab the prostitute, her faith was active. This is what he says, in the same way. In the same way. James, a Jewish writer, writing to a Jewish audience, is comparing Abraham to Rahab. In the same way, your father of faith, how he lived by faith, just like that, you have this prostitute, this Gentile prostitute who lived by faith. What did Rahab do? Well, her story is in Joshua 2, when the Israelites sent spies into Canaan, they met Rahab, who was a prostitute at the time. She met these spies, and she housed them. She showed hospitality. And even though the king of Jericho at that time ordered her to release the spies, saying, release them, she lied. She covered for them. She protected them. Now, why do you think she did that? Why would she put her own life at risk? It's because the spies told her about God. She heard from them the message of Yahweh, who he was and what he was going to do. And what did Rahab do? She listened, she believed, and she acted. She wasn't just a hearer, but she was a doer. Notice how James refers to these people, not as spies, but he refers to them as what? As messengers. They came, and as messengers, they delivered the message of salvation. And what did she say? She didn't just go, okay, that's a great story. Let me think about it. She didn't say, oh, you know what? Let me put that on the back burner. She didn't say, you know what? I believe you, but I'm not going to stake my life on it. No, she believed, and her faith was demonstrated by her action. You see, people may differentiate between Abraham and Rahab, but oh, not James. For James, they both lived their faith out. And James underscores that Rahab was a prostitute. Why? Because for James, this demonstrates the power of the gospel. That saving faith, true faith, is not based on what you do relative to others. You cannot compare the living out of your faith with other people thinking, you know what, I only do this much or I only can say this much. No, that is not what living faith is. According to James, living faith is this. Do you simply hear the word of God and do you live it out in your present context? In the life that God has placed you in now, in the people that God has placed you in, in your life now, are you living your faith out now, in your present context. 
You know, Hebrews 11 is, is a chapter that's filled with people who have lived and walked by faith, and there Rahab also makes another appearance. Hebrews 11.31 says this, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab, this woman who had lived a life of sin and debauchery as she was a prostitute, she lived her entire life this way, but when met with the good news of Jesus, what did she do? She responded. She acted. And as a result, she became a woman of faith. Church, the question for us all this morning is this. How much of your faith actually has an impact in your life now? Does your faith influence your day-to-day? Does it change the way you view the world? Does it change the way you spend your time? Does it change the way you treat and view others? Does it change the way you budget your finances? Does it change the way you parent or how you treat your parents? How does faith influence, impact? How is it operative in your life? Are you living by faith? And James wants us to ponder and question this very question. If faith has no impact, no influence in the day-to-day, how can you expect your faith to have an impact in eternity? What is faith for you? Is it simply a profession? Is it a creedal profession, a verbal statement Is it simply acknowledgement or intellectual assent? Is it simply, okay, I believe this? Or is faith operative and alive in you? Friends, the life of faith at times could be very small, day to day, just being faithful what the Lord has called you to do. But sometimes faith can seem radical, extreme, difficult. The two examples that we find is Abraham lived out his faith by obeying God to the point of sacrificing his son. Abraham was called to do that, and that was for Abraham a life of faith. Rahab, she had staked her life. She had risked her life to live a life of faith. Often living a life of faith will be risky, costly. But friends, here's the motivation. For those of you who feel burdened, wondering, you know, can I live this way? Look at what it says in today's passage. As Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, as verse 23 says, and he was called a friend of God. He was called a friend of God. In that moment, as Abraham was going back and forth, should I sacrifice my son Isaac? Should I obey, yes or no? Should I risk my life and the life of my own son, yes or no? What tipped him over was not fear. What tipped him over was actually this idea that God was his friend. That God as his friend had his best interest in mind. And even though Abraham couldn't understand exactly what God was doing, he saw God as someone whom he could trust as a friend. 
And when he heard the words of his friend, he was able to follow, he was able to obey. He was able to live that out. Why? Because he knew that God was his friend. Friends, what deters you from living a life of faith? Is it this idea, do you see God as this enacting judge who is counting every single wrong, who is keeping track and tally of what you're doing? What is keeping you from obeying God and living a life of faith? What might help, what will help, is, is if you start to see God as your friend, that the advice He gives, that the words He speaks, that the life He asks you to live is for your good. Because this God who is our friend is one who, like Abraham, took his son up to a mountain, to a hill called Calvary. And there his son was crucified. He sacrificed his own son so that you and I could become his friends. He is a friend that you can trust. He is a friend who laid everything down. He is a good, good friend. So friends, if there is any fear, any worry, any angst, any concern, thinking, if I live a life of faith, what would that mean? Friends, may those worries dissipate as you start to see God as your true friend. Would you join me in prayer at this time? If we could uh, just spend a few moments um, just reflecting and praying. God is your friend. God is your friend. He has your best interest in mind. He is your friend that you can trust. You can rely on him. You can take him at his word. He is your friend. Jesus calls his disciples his friends. And he says, listen, if you do what I say, you will be my friend. You know, a true friend is someone whom you can trust, whom you can listen to, whom you can follow. And Jesus is our true friend. Would you obey him this morning? Would you go forth this week living a life of faith? in the small ways, in the large ways, in the day-to-day, but also in radical ways? Would you walk by faith? Would your faith be demonstrated by your actions and your words? Let's spend a few minutes to pray at this time. Let's pray.